Welcome to Zero Downtime, the new podcast brought to you by DCD's editorial team in partnership with Vertiv, the world's leading critical infrastructure provider. Vertiv has kept the world's leading businesses connected for more than 50 years. We build, deliver, and support critical infrastructure that's available, sustainable, and future-ready. Visit us at vertiv.com and see what we can do for you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of DCD's Zero Downtime. I'm Georgia Butler. I'm one of the reporters at DCD. Today, I'm joined with Yuval Boga from Quira, and we're going to talk a little bit about quantum computing. Yuval, how are you doing today? Excellent. Thank you very much for having me, Georgia. It's not a problem at all. It's my pleasure. Um, so why don't we just start with a very kind of brief explanation of what quantum computers are? I think a lot of our audience will know, but there will be a few people that aren't as familiar with it. So I think that would be a great place for us to begin. Wonderful. So quantum computers are computers that use special characteristics of quantum physics. Uh, what ends up being unique about quantum computers is that unlike a classical computer where every bit could be either zero or one, in a quantum computer, every quantum bit, uh, usually called a qubit, could be zero and one with some probabilities. And that is one of the reasons that quantum computers <clears throat> can perform calculations um, differently than classical computers and potentially solve problems that even the largest high performance, the largest high, the largest supercomputer cannot solve today. Mm. Okay. I mean, there's lots of different ways that you can go about making a quantum computer though, aren't there? It's not just a, there's not just one solution. So could you talk a little bit about like the different options? I mean, I think, you guys are using lasers in your um, quantum computers, I believe. Absolutely. So once the idea of building a quantum computer or the need to create a quantum computer was born, different people started looking at different ways to implement that vision. And today there are multiple ways, almost a dozen different ways to do that. So some companies use what's called superconductors. So they use material that when cooled to very, very low temperatures, close to absolute zero, has characteristics that allow them to implement a qubit. In our case, in Quera, our qubits, our quantum bits, are individual atoms, which are held in place by tiny laser beams that can also move them around. And when atoms are sufficiently close to each other, um, usually a couple of microns, a couple of millionth of a meter, then can, they can interact with each other. Other companies use uh, photons, photonics to implement quantum computers. Yet other companies use uh, some variation of silicon qubits to do that, and so on and so on. So the jury is still out on which one is the best approach to implement a quantum computer. Mm. Are we seeing any kind of um, like pattern in that? Like, are some types doing performing a little bit better than others or is it still really early days so it's a little bit of a horse race that depends on when you when you look at the race one technology seems to be ahead of the other um, now how do you measure progress so one thing that you want is 
larger number of qubits. So almost like you could say a classical computer might be preferred if it has more memory or it has more registers or it can work faster than a quantum computer. If it has more qubits, it can perform more sophisticated calculation. And that's really important because quantum computers with a small number of qubits could be simulated perfectly on a classical computer up to about 40 or 50 qubits. So if you only have a quantum computer with 20 qubits by itself, it's not worth the effort because you can run the exact same program on a classical computer, which is uh, today cheaper and easier to use and prevalent and, and so on and so on. So one measure of progress is the number of qubits. The second measure of uh, progress is the error rate. When you perform an operation, in what percent of the time the result is correct versus has an error. <clears throat> and this is true for actually every single qubit operation. So imagine, for instance, that you're running on a classical computer, on a, say running a spreadsheet, and you need to add 100 numbers. Each of these 100 adds um, might have an error. And if it has an error, it could um, spoil your entire calculation. So to be useful, Quantum computers need to get to error rates that are so low that you can trust the calculation or find a way to correct these errors. So number of qubits is one, error rate is the other. The third thing uh, that differentiates quantum computers is whether they require cryogenic cooling. You know, do they, do they work at room temperature or do they require these sophisticated fridges to cool them down to very, very low temperatures. Um, and there are several other factors where you can measure and say, oh, by this factor, this type of computer is now better than the other. And quantum computers have made tremendous amount of progress over the last few years. And many people believe that whether it's in two years or three years or five years, they will soon be able to truly deliver the promise of being able to perform useful calculations that classical computers cannot. Can you explain a little bit like what, um, like some examples of those uh, calculations and the actual like, yeah, where we're gonna see these put into practice and um, rather than just being a, an awesome scientific experiment? It definitely is an awesome scientific experiment, but in terms of practical applications, uh, they usually fall into three areas. Uh, one is simulation, the other is optimization, and the third one is machine learning. So on simulation, uh, a lot of companies want to simulate the properties of materials. It could be um, a new, maybe, maybe it's a new battery and you're trying to develop a more efficient battery for an electric vehicle. Maybe it's a solar cell where you want it to be more efficient. So it does a better job at converting solar energy into electricity. Maybe it's a new type of medicine or drug. And so these are complex molecules and simulating these molecules in classical computers is exceptionally difficult. And very, 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 very quickly, once you get to uh, molecules that are not trivial, you start making all kinds of assumptions and sort of discounts in classical computing that make the result less accurate. So if you had a quantum computer that could simulate materials, you could make tremendous progress in, in medicine and in agriculture, in uh, clean energy and so on. 
The other one is optimization. And there are optimization problems all around us. So for instance, imagine that you're a FedEx driver and you've got 100 packages to deliver. Well, which package do you deliver first? And which do you deliver second? The answer not only may depend on what you're trying to achieve, are you trying to achieve them in the fastest possible way, or are you trying to uh, save fuel? But the answer could change over time. Maybe there's a traffic jam here. Maybe something, maybe the customer called to reschedule a delivery. And so finding that optimal route for deliveries, uh, just as one optimization example, could have tremendous impact on the profitability of companies. It could be shipping containers. It could be um, which uh, plane goes to, uh, what, you know, what's the ideal route or what's the ideal network for an airline. Uh, it could be portfolio optimization. You have some stocks in your portfolio. Are they the best combination to achieve both the return that you're looking for and the risk profile that you're willing to uh, take upon yourself? And the third one is machine learning, and that ties a lot into what we see today as AI, where how do we take the vast amount of data that's out there and use that to understand medical images to see if there's something benign or, or not, uh, to predict weather patterns, uh, to understand what's going to be the energy consumption of a smart city, and so on and so on. So all these areas, optimization, simulation, and machine learning, are areas that there's tremendous amount of work happening in quantum computers today. Mm. What about, um, I mean, maybe maybe I'm getting a little too Hollywood, but what about something like um, like data encryption and breaking codes and things like that? Could these computers, I mean, tackle those issues in a different way? You're absolutely right that um, advanced technologies could be used for good and could be used for not so good. <laughs> and so the world's financial system, you mentioned encryption, mm -hmm. is built, uh, or, or most of it, is built on the notion that if you take a, uh, a very, very large number, which is made out of the product of two prime numbers, it's very difficult to find these two prime numbers. I mean, if 15 is three times five, that's easy. But if you take a number that's 100 digits long, um, a classical computer would take billions of years to find the right combination. Mm -hmm. It turns out that quantum computers, if they had sufficient number of qubits, and these qubits were sufficiently good, the error rate sufficiently low, uh, they could crack this in a much, much, much shorter time. This is a very famous quantum algorithm invented by uh, Professor Shore. Um, and so there's a concern that once quantum computers are sufficiently strong, then people could crack that encryption. Mm -hmm. It's not only a futuristic problem, it could be a today problem. And the reason it's a today problem is that you can imagine hostile actors capturing data today, even though they cannot decrypt it today, thinking, hey, maybe in three or five years, we could decrypt that data and it would be very useful. So some data has a shelf life of uh, just a few minutes or a few days. No one would care in, a, in five years which restaurant 
I ate in last week, but maybe health records, our financial records or life insurance policies or, or other or, or government secrets. So there's absolutely, you're absolutely correct that quantum computers could potentially be used to break this encryption. And so there's a, a ton of work creating quantum resistant algorithms, creating networks that cannot be eavesdropped and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting, isn't it? Like, I feel like there's some parallels in a way between this and um, like the space race, not necessarily particular nations or governments, but just like the idea that everyone, as soon as people realize this technology could be a really big deal, everyone then needs to kind of progress at the same pace to make sure that the equilibrium remains, right? And that things remain as protected as possible. And, you know, because we, we ultimately, everyone has to kind of progress at the same rate. It's just, it's going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, you mentioned like a, it would need to be a large amount of qubits for this to really work. I mean, how, how many are we talking and how close are we actually to that? Because I think you're, um, am I right in thinking that Quira's um, quantum computer has 256? Is that right? Yes. So our, our first generation computer has 256 qubits. Mm -hmm. And it's, but it's not just the number of qubits. It's also, you know, the error rate and, and subsequently how, what, how long a calculation can you perform without running into errors? So yeah. our computer today can be used to solve certain optimization problems. It, it uh, mm -hmm. solves certain uh, simulation problems, but it's nowhere close to being able to uh, execute Shor's algorithm uh, the, the, to decrypt on sufficiently large numbers. Now, mm -hmm. on one hand, I think we mentioned that once you get about above 40 or 50 qubits, then you're getting into this really interesting zone where some algorithms cannot be simulated and cannot run on a classical computer. You're getting into this, oh, I've got this amazing compute power. What can I do with it? Um, the exact number of qubits and the exact error rate depends on the application. It may be that for optimization, you don't need that many qubits, but to run Shor's algorithm, uh, you need a ton. The other thing that's happening besides hardware development is that a lot of people are working on creating new algorithms and finding more efficient ways to achieve this, that, or the other. Um, and so there is a very, very interesting race, both on the hardware level, on the software level, and as you mentioned, on the national level. I mean, imagine if you, if you look at existing technologies, imagine if one country had internet and another country didn't, ha didn't have access to the internet. Imagine if one country mastered artificial intelligence, whereas another did not. That would be, create huge advantages to one country over the other. So a lot of countries are investing in national quantum programs, where the goal is both to acquire this technology, develop it internally, as well as build a talent ecosystem, because they believe this is going to be a central pillar of tomorrow's computing. So if one country could develop a vaccine faster than another, could optimize their transportation network faster than another, or on a sinister level, could break into someone else's uh, secure systems, that would give that country with quantum capabilities 
very, very substantial advantages. So there's a lot of investments all over for all these different reasons. Um, so you guys' quantum computer currently is housed, I believe, is it in your in a data center or in a lab? So our first generation quantum computer is currently hosted in our headquarters in Boston. Mm-hmm. It is, however, connected to the Amazon, what's called Amazon bracket, the Amazon quantum cloud. That means that pretty much anyone in the world with a credit card could access that computer and run jobs. And we've seen people from numerous countries run numerous different applications. Now, we are now working to put additional computers in other locations, not just square locations, but on-premises. And so a lot of people, a lot of companies, data centers, sometimes countries, want to acquire their own quantum computer. They might want to do that for control, meaning they want to determine who's running, what priority, and so on. Because if you're running on a computer that's shared throughout the world, you may be waiting in line for hours after someone submitted a really large job from that's unrelated to you. So control is one way, is one reason they want on-premises computers. The other one could be data residency. Some data is sensitive. Do I want to send it over the cloud? In what country is it going to be hosted? Do I want to send it outside the firewall? So that could be another one. Yet a third reason could be integration with classical computing resources. So a lot of quantum algorithms are what's called hybrid algorithms, where part is run on the quantum computer and part is run on a classical computer. And if these computers are physically nearby, uh, it can be more efficient to send data from one to the other. It could be quicker. The algorithms could perform better. So the short answer to your question is today, our computer is hosted at Quera and connected to the cloud. But starting in the next few months, uh, we'll be working to deliver computers on premises to data centers and to third party locations. I mean, how complex is that? What what kind of requirements do you have of a, a, just a building to actually house a quantum computer? So for our particular quantum computers, the requirements are uh, pretty easy. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not much different than a data center uh, uh, requirement. So for instance, our first generation quantum computers, a quantum computer consumes only about seven kilowatts of power. Seven kilowatts of power is what you would consume if you operate three hair dryers at the same time. So it's wow. not not too scary. No, that's and, nothing. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, and so we need, um, you know, an air-conditioned environment, so the temperature-controlled environment. Uh, we need uh, some power. Um, we need some... Uh, uh, some forced air and so on, but the requirements are not scary to anyone running a, a data center. Mm-hmm. Some other computers, not Queras, have more stringent requirements, especially those that require these. Uh, you, know, you know, when people think about uh, computers, they sometimes envision that uh, chandelier, and that chandelier, you know, is is indicative of computers that use uh, dilution refrigerators that need to cool the qubits down to near absolute zero temperature. 
And if you have a dilution refrigerator, then you need much more infrastructure than what you would need for a computer like Quera's. Is that um, kind of like the IBM, I think the IBM image that you often see of, um, I don't even know yeah, how you describe it. I guess a chandelier is probably the best way of looking at it, right? Yes, the, the uh, IBM machines are based on what's called superconducting qubits. Mm. They do require that dilution refrigerator. Um, I mean, IBM is doing a fantastic job in building quantum computers and in educating the market. But we believe that our computers are going to be much better for a number for two main reasons. Mm. One reason is that in the IBM computer and computers like them, the qubits are fixed in place, which means that any qubit could only communicate with two, three, maybe four nearby qubits. In our design, the qubits can move. So any qubit could communicate, could entangle or interact with any other qubit. And the reason that's important is imagine that, that you and I were living in the same town and we just wanted to talk to each other. So maybe I have a car, I just drive over, I meet you for coffee, we talk, and, and, and then we part ways. If I'm a superconducting qubit, I can't move anywhere. So if I want to send you a message, I have to talk to my neighbor, and my neighbor has to talk with her neighbor, and so on and so on. And by the time you get the message, it may be garbled. There may be errors in it. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's also very inefficient. So our ability to move qubits allows for more efficient algorithms to make more use of the um, a certain number of qubits that we have. The other big reason is that reason of scalability, meaning to have quantum computers that are truly useful, you want to get to a large number of qubits. Well, IBM and others have publicly said that when they need to get to beyond a few hundred qubits, they're going to start to network the machines with a special uh, fiber, with special optical interconnect. Um, and so now you're going to have a, a whole bunch of machines that are somehow connected, each of them require their own uh, cooling mechanism. And that's becoming very, very complex and cumbersome. In our technology, using what we call neutral atoms, we can put 10,000 or sometimes tens of thousands of qubits on the same machine. They can all talk to each other. They don't need a, a whole lot of control signals. So we believe that our path to creating large-scale computers that have very, very low error rates is going to be much simpler than those using other technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so for the, the, the people who are looking to get these, as you said, on-premise quantum computers from you, what sort of um, sectors are they from? Are they, are they academic institutions mostly? And how affordable is it as well? I mean, I'm maybe I'm incorrect in thinking this, but as it's such a kind of new technology, I'm imagining it is quite expensive. These computers are uh, built one by one. Uh, there are not that many of them in the world. So yes, they are they are expensive to buy a quantum computer is you know, millions of dollars. Um, but by the way, the alternative to access on the cloud is much cheaper, you could access on the cloud, 
for hundreds or a few thousands of dollars per hour. So if you just want to dabble in quantum computing, certainly you don't need to buy one. Mm -hmm. um, those organizations that buy it could be um, national quantum programs for various countries for the reasons that I mentioned. They want to get into quantum. They want to develop the local workforce and the quantum economy. It could be companies that already own supercomputers. So uh, energy companies own supercomputers and pharma companies open, uh, own supercomputers and, and people who are in the business of weather forecasting own supercomputers. So if you believe that a quantum computer could soon enough do things beyond your supercomputer, then maybe it's time to start investing in quantum as well. Mm -hmm. Do you see this kind of overtaking the supercomputers at some point? Like the, the focus of research and funding going more towards quantum and less, yeah, less towards these classical computers. The analogy that we like to use is the GPU, the graphical processing unit. So when GPUs came on scene, they did not replace traditional CPUs. They augmented them. So, um, and I think the same will happen with the QPUs, with the quantum processor units. I think it, there's very, very low chance that we will ever have a Zoom meeting on a quantum, that's running on a quantum computer um, that will continue to be on a CPU. Uh, I don't think we're going to use Microsoft Word on a quantum computer. That's going to be on a CPU. And on the other hand, in a few years, we could run high-end simulations on a QPU instead of a GPU or, or a CPU. So by adding quantum to a data center, we're giving the users and the operators of the data center a much broader uh, range of resources that allow them to select the right processor to run any given application. Okay. Yeah, no, I, um, I think that makes a lot of sense, to be honest. And you're, you are completely right. Like there has been, I guess, in the last... Uh, couple of years since the AI boom, there's been a lot of news about the GPUs, but yeah, you're completely right. We, we can't just use them. There's, there are other needs as well. Um, I mean, I think that's pretty much it, to be honest. Is there anything else that you think is really worth mentioning? Quantum computing <clears throat> is a, is a very exciting field today. And if you are, a young person thinking about the next steps for um, your career, then quantum computing may be a field you might be interested in. Uh, obviously, there is a need for physicists, for mathematicians, for computer scientists, but there's a, also a need for people who want to assemble these, to build, to service them, uh, to manufacture them. Because if it stays in the lab, it's not going to be as useful as we are all hoping. So imagine going, you know, 30 years back or 40 years back, and now the internet is starting and people say, yeah, this is, this is a field that I should really engage in. I think we're at that point with quantum computing. It's super exciting. Uh, it's a really nice industry. Uh, there's a lot of discovery going on, and there's really room for everyone to join, to join us in this journey to create this new method, uh, this new modality of computing.
Yuval, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really interesting. And uh, I have actually genuinely learned a lot about quantum computers. So <laughs> I'm very grateful. Thank you very much, Georgia. It was a pleasure. Sustainability is no longer a nice to have. It's a priority. Vertive Power, cooling and IT management solutions for critical infrastructure are designed to reduce the use of energy, water, and space. From innovative liquid cooling to dynamic grid services, we work hand-in-hand -hand with customers to enable them to meet their data center sustainability goals. Visit us at vertive.com and see what we can do for you. Thanks for listening to the Zero Downtime Podcast. Brought to you in partnership with Vertiv, the world's leading critical digital infrastructure provider. Don't forget to like this podcast and subscribe to our channel. We'll see you again next time.